Hello, and welcome to Beth Takoon and this Spiritual Season series, where we are exploring how each Torah portion fits into the bigger picture of salvation that we can see in the yearly calendar. This week, we are in the double portion of Hukat and Balak, numbers 19 to 25.9. Both of these portions on their own are just overflowing with topics to talk about, and taken together, we have a pretty big challenge today to even just hit the highlights. So let's get to it with a summary combined with a few initial thoughts about each topic here. So the name Hukat means statute, and the portion begins with the statute of the red heifer, what the sages have considered to be one of the greatest enigmas in the whole Torah. God commands that the ashes of a red cow be used in the process to purify someone who has come into contact with a human corpse. The mystery for the rabbis is that the priests involved in creating the ashes, they themselves become unclean. So how is it that that which makes clean from such a dire ritual impurity renders the priests who do the service, uh, the ones who do the service to create these ashes, how is is it that it renders them unclean in the preparation there? So between the statute of the red heifer and the beginning of the next chapter, 38 years pass, almost the whole experience of the wilderness journey. From Numbers 20 to the end of the Torah, Israel is going through the final preparations needed to enter the land. Hukat, in particular, has this feeling of the beginning of the end with the deaths of both Miriam and Aaron, and God's pronouncement that Moses will not enter the land. The death of Miriam is the topic that follows the statute of the red heifer. The fact that the Torah records this woman's death is meaningful. She was an important leader in that generation that left Egypt. And lest we begin to doubt that, Listen to the following verse from the Haftarah portion in Micah. It says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I set set before you, sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So Miriam is included with Moses and Aaron there. The rabbis see a connection between the death of Miriam and the lack of water that follows. So the next incident in the text is the quarrel at Meribah. Meribah is puzzling for the rabbis who question why God gives such a severe punishment to Moses when it's not quite clear what he does wrong here. The people are lacking water, you know, leading up to this moment, and they quarrel with Moses. And God instructs Moses to speak to the rock to bring forth water for them. In the process of doing so, Moses somehow stumbles. God describes Moses' error here as a failure to treat him as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. And so for this, Moses and Aaron are both not permitted to enter the land um, when Israel goes in. So the rabbis focus a lot on the fact that Moses is told to speak to the rock, but he hits it instead. And so to more fully understand why this is such a problem, we need to remember that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the Israelites all drank 
the same spiritual drink in the wilderness. And he adds, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Messiah. And so this is some information that the rabbis wouldn't be privy to or wouldn't be trusting in. But why is it such a problem to hit the rock? Well, the rock in question here, from which the water flows in the wilderness, you know, as we just said, is a picture of the Messiah. So at the moment when Moses strikes the rock, rather than speaking to it, he has placed himself in the position of the Jewish leaders who strike the Messiah by insisting that he be crucified. Moses is a very upright and holy figure, and his life is recorded in the Torah and preserved for us to study and learn from. He's not just any old person here. And so he is held to an immensely high standard. For the great leader Moses, any deviation from God's word creates vast ripples throughout time and space, right? We're all studying him in the Torah and his walk and his life. And so he's not perfect, obviously, but in this case in particular, in God's eyes, this momentary and veiled placing of himself in the position of the religious leaders who insisted upon Yeshua's crucifixion is truly momentous. So let me tack on a fascinating point here about the waters of Meribah and this rock. And so as I mentioned, the rabbis have seen a connection between Miriam and this rock. They say that the rock brings forth water in the merit of Miriam and that Israel lacks water at this point in the story because Miriam has just died. Remember, the, the last topic was the death of Miriam. And so, since we see from the apostolic scriptures that the rock is a picture of Messiah, we can sense that something is a bit cloudy in their interpretation of saying that this water is coming forth in the merit of Miriam. Something's a little bit off here, but the picture comes into more focus when we take another piece of information from the Gospels, the fact that Yeshua's mother is named Mary, which is the Hebrew name Miriam. So the rabbis see a connection between Miriam and the rock. And this is because Miriam pictures Mary, the mother of Yeshua. And so in a very real way, Miriam does have a role in the bringing forth of the water from the rock in the same way that Mary has a role in bringing forth the rock itself, who is the Messiah. It's an absolutely amazing connection that the rabbis are seeing here with Miriam, though we might be prone to ignore an insight like that or even kind of sneer at it and say, where in the world are they getting this from? But um, we need to be humble in receiving the ancient wisdom When the fullness of scripture sheds its light on both the Torah and the studies of the Jewish people over the centuries, we start to see connections and more connections, and a great light begins to emerge from all the details of scripture, every detail of scripture. So praise the Lord for opening up the whole breadth of scripture to us so that the wisdom of the two flocks, right, the Jewish flock on the one hand studying Torah the Christians on the other studying Torah, when these are combined, they really illuminate each other. And so Messianics benefit from those both coming together. 
The action uh, doesn't slow down in Parsha Hukat. Next, we have the story of how Edom refuses to allow Israel to pass through their territory. Edom's refusal here smarts a bit because Edom is a cousin nation to Israel. Edom is one of the names given to Jacob's twin brother Esau. And so these people are descendants of both Abraham and Isaac through Isaac's son Esau. They lived in the rugged regions immediately to the south and to the southeast of the land of Canaan. So there's a rift here that opens up in the family, so to speak. Well, next we have the death of Aaron. God instructs Moses to take Aaron and his son Eliezer up Mount Hor. And once there, he is to remove Aaron's garments and put them on Eliezer before he is gathered to his people. And so imagine the great weight of such a moment. These two brothers, Moses and Aaron, they're old now, and they had been through so much together, starting way back in Egypt together. And so here now they stand on a mountaintop with also one from the next generation who will be entrusted with the leadership of the nation in a way. And as Moses removes each you know, piece of holy clothing. Aaron comes closer and closer to God taking him away. And so did Moses tarry at at all in the task of unmaking his older brother? I'd like to think that with each article of the clothing transferred to Eliezer, Aaron's soul grew lighter and lighter and his eyes brighter and brighter, and his joy greater. Maybe he was smiling. Moses and Eliezer eventually come down the mountain together, but without Aaron, the beloved first high priest of the nation. And the people mourn for 30 days, as they will also do for Moses a bit later. Well, next, the the king of Arad comes out to fight Israel, and he takes some Israelites captive. Well, Israel vows to, and the people actually themselves here, vow to devote his cities to destruction if God will give them victory. And he does give them victory. So you can go today to see the ancient ruined Canaanite city of Arad. It's not far from the modern city of the same name. And I was privileged to be able to live in Arad, the modern city, for a couple of years. Uh, And it was a wonderful place to live. So, but I got to go to those Canaanite ruins a few times. And it's just amazing to think how far back those ruins stretched in time. And and there they are, right there. You can see what that ancient city looked like. So, moving on in the text, the people are discouraged that they have, um, that they have to go around Edom. I mean, they're, they're going so many more miles because Edom will not let them pass through. And they're frustrated and they speak against God and Moses. And this time God sends fiery serpents, which kill many. Well, they repent and they announce, you know, they kind of express their repentance more clearly here than we see elsewhere. And so the light is dawning on them. Um, Their eyes are opening But um, more and more, of course, that's always happening. But God instructs Moses, uh, as these snakes are biting people, 
to make a bronze serpent um, and to affix it onto a pole. And um, when the people are bitten by a snake, they are to look at the bronze snake and they will live. So Israel dies in a lot of ways in the wilderness, but this episode is unique for its terror and its sort of in-your-face symbolism, right? The snake, which we see back in Genesis, being used here in a couple of ways, uh, both for death and for healing. So that's a pretty complicated thing happening there. Well, next, the narrative turns positive as we have the Song of the Well, something that can be easily overlooked, but it's quite an amazing little passage. And it's something that the people, the people sing after God gathers them together to receive water. So this is at another point in the journey. The song is only three short lines. It says, Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it. The well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. Well, despite its brevity, this is considered one of the ten archetypal songs sung since the beginning of time, right? Archetype means something that sets a type. And there are considered to be ten of these songs. So the first one is actually a psalm said to have been sung by Adam himself, and that's Psalm 92. Um, The song of the well is actually the third in this group. And according to the ancient wisdom, nine of the songs have already been sung, and we now await the tenth, which is called the Song of the Messiah. And so the Song of the Well reveals the great growth the nation has undergone in the wilderness. There's no talk of grumbling here about water, first of all. The people breaking out in song is itself a picture of greater unity. I mean, when you're singing together, you are all unified to where you're breathing together even. And that greater unity comes with each step of maturity. Take another step, more unity. Take another step, more unity. And so the beauty of this song is that it isn't just God providing water from a rock like before. It's like God has led Israel to some dusty, parched place, a dead place, which is described by the place names that lead up to the song. We understand it's a very low place. And it talks about going down into valleys, and it further mentions the slope of the valleys that lead to the seat of Ar, A-R, which, if you kind of trace it back a little bit, can be translated as the city of anguish. So here they are, coming down, down how God has led them down into this valley, along these slopes to the city of anguish, And at that very low place, God says, trust me, dig here. And so rather than simply providing the water, he wants them to have a role to play, a role that requires faith and faithfulness, faithful effort over time. And the song says that the nobles of the people dug, but they didn't dig with shovels. They took 
the scepters that were a sign of their authority, the sign of their high position, and they stooped low to serve the people. It was the nobles that used their scepters to dig and to dig and to dig. I don't know if you've ever seen a well dug or done that yourself, but it is not an easy thing to dig in dry, rocky ground. And after much effort, the water began to creep into the hole and the rejoicing went up as a song. The people were unified through these faithful exertions of the leaders. And so it's just a a, a few simple lines, but what an image we're seeing there, an, an image of development and growth, and it's something to rejoice over. And so finally, in Parsha Hukat, we have the defeat of the Amorites east of the Jordan, most notably the kingdoms of Sihon and Og. And so as Hukat ends and Balak begins, the nation arrives at the threshold of the land and camped opposite Jericho in the plains of Moab. The next 15 Parshas amount to uh, more than a quarter of all the Torah portions And um, they take place while Israel is at this final stop in their 40-year journey there on the plains of Moab. So, whereas Hukat spans 38 years and is filled with momentous events that are uh, each given just a handful of verses, Balak is the telling of one story in two parts. So it's the record of how a Moabite king tries to derail God's plan for his chosen people. Balak first hires the famous Gentile prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And much to both Balak's and Balaam's chagrin, Balaam blesses Israel instead four times. We know from other places in scripture that Balaam eventually gives Balak the wicked advice to send in the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men and lead them into idolatry. And the plan works. 24,000 who had sinned in this way end up dying by the swords of their brothers and by a plague sent by God. And so the portion ends when Aaron's grandson Phinehas drives a spear through an Israelite woman and the Midianite, or sorry, through an Israelite man and the Midianite woman he had taken into his tent Well, let's start placing these portions in the flow of the calendar by beginning where we often do with the meaning of the Parsha names. So Hukat, as I mentioned before, means statute. It's from a root that means to engrave or to inscribe, to write by cutting away. Uh, Hok is not just a law. It's a law that mankind wouldn't ever come up with on its own, one that doesn't make sense to us using human logic. And so the statute of the red heifer, it doesn't seem to make sense to us. It's not something we would have come up with on our own. We can come up with do not murder on our own, probably, but not take a red cow outside the camp and burn it and use its ashes mixed with water to purify a person who has had to make contact with a human corpse. And there would have been a lot of that contact. Uh, Grant mentioned probably a thousand funerals a day, if we think about how many people died in that generation over those 40 years. So the idea of a hoke is that because of the, you know, sort of incongruity of it, because of our inability to understand it, 
Obedience to a chok carries a special kind of power with it, an enhanced power to make us one with God's word and God himself. You know, like an engraving versus writing on a piece of parchment. It's more one. The word is more one with the substrate. So it's one thing to do a commandment that we understand, but a higher level of bonding results from doing a commandment that is baffling to us, but one that we do anyway, because we trust God, come what may. I mean, let others scorn us for doing what, what seems so hard to understand. We will do what God says and trust that it is life for us. And there's a special kind of power that exercising that kind of faith um, fills us with in connection to God. So, but for our purposes in placing these portions in the flow of the calendar, I want to point out that engraving requires changing the substrate forever. It's not that, it's not that way with ink that is applied to parchment. As I said, ink on parchment is less permanent. It doesn't change the actual parchment beneath to the same degree. The ink essentially sits on top of the parchment. So when a thing is engraved, on the other hand, the old form is surrendered at the same time that the new form is created. Material is removed, and there's no putting that back. There's not much that can be done to erase what is done after the violence of chisel and hammer are applied to stone. It's changed forever. So, in fact, if we're giving free will to the stone that is chiseled, and, and we are the stone, by the way, we could say that the stone has to submit to a kind of death um, in order to embrace a new life in which the word has become part of it. It's a beautiful idea, really. And it speaks of complete surrender in order to bear the word on our lives, in order to become the living word. So my point here about this name, Hukat, is that it's about death and new life, surrendering that old form as you receive a new form, death and new life. And so likewise, the name Balak is also about death. It's almost similar in a way to um, the root of Hukat. Uh, Balak means to cut off. Uh, but Balak also carries the connotation to annihilate or to devastate. And so the Quixote Komish lists just the simple word dead as a meaning of Balak. And so both of these Parsha names, you know, then both Hukat and Balak bring this connotation of death with them. And so that's where we're going to look to make our connections here to the Torah portions um, so what does death have to do with this season? Well, let's review some of what we have already established in previous teachings about this spiritual season. The important ideas here can be summed up with the concept of adolescence, that phase of human development that we are associating with the spiritual season that starts with Shavuot, right? That's, that's the beginning of the time of adolescence, we're saying, um, and that's a time that's likened to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah every year. The receiving of the Torah, which is what we're primarily celebrating at Shavuot, um, 
is the becoming personally responsible to the Torah. And it's a, it's a wonderful transition uh, moment from childhood to young adulthood. But it, it's also the beginning of a battle that involves dying. It involves death. So to take some liberties with, to summarize Paul, uh, the Torah teaches us, this is how Paul explains it, sort of. I'm putting my own words on it. It's, the Torah teaches us what sin is. And once it does, sin takes advantage of the clarity and knowledge and obligation of the Torah to spring up in us. And the battle is really on at that point. The war with the flesh really flares up in us because now we know with clarity what sin is. And from this point on, we know that choosing to indulge the flesh is choosing to sin. And once we know, we are held accountable to a greater degree. And being held accountable means that we incur the wages of sin, which is death. So it is that the receiving of the Torah, right, Shavuot, leads to death. It leads, it leads to sin springing up in us. We are accountable now. We receive the wages of that sin, which is death. And so here we are in the season that follows Shavuot, it is indeed a season of death. And so we will soon begin the three weeks, the period of great mourning in the calendar, when Israel has suffered unspeakable loss throughout history. And what is happening in us spiritually is being reflected at this time in the physical land of Israel, um, which is the body of Israel, right? The spirit gets reflected into the body. And Israel is enduring the long dry season now. The rains have stopped and the earth turns yellow and leaves drop as many plants go dormant because they lack water. The heavens and the earth are separated from each other and separation is death. But death is not the end. Paul says that the point of this death is that sin would be recognized for what it is, utterly sinful, a dead end. That leads only to frustration and separation. Revealing sin for what it is, is the first step in the undoing of the sin. And so soon after this revelation, we are brought to repentance. The next step, right? Soon after the revelation of sin being entirely sinful and a dead end, we are led to repentance. And in the calendar, the three weeks are soon followed by the joyous celebration of Tuba'av, which was a time of, um, of, of finding a, a spouse anciently. And then soon again comes the 40 days of repentance that start in the sixth month of Elul and continue through the 10 days of awe. And so by God's design, the purpose of death is that it leads to new life, a new life that is higher than before. And so let me say that again. By God's design, the purpose of death is that it leads to a new life, a reconnection that ends up higher than the first connection before we suffered through death. Well, all of that brings us back to our double portion in these two names that speak of death, Hukat and Balak or Balak. When I read Hukat this year, I came away with the feeling that this portion, more than others, really whipsaws back and forth between death and life. 
first I focused on the death. Um, I focused on death for some obvious reasons. Both Miriam and Aaron actually die in this portion. Moses is given a kind of death sentence here too. And not only that, but the portion begins with cleansing from the impurity of touching a corpse, right? A dead body. The law of, um, right, it starts with the law of the red heifer, or the, the statute of the red heifer. And that sets the tone for the whole portion. It's about death. And we have the dramatic incident here of the fiery serpents where 24,000 die. Even the story with Edom is a kind of death of relationship for Israel. And the 38 years that pass by in Hukat have as their main goal the death of a generation that doubted God when the 12 spies gave their report. So death sticks out all over like gravestones in this portion. But when you look a bit closer, the other stories here seem very different. The conquering of a rod, the beautiful song of the well, and the victories over the Amorites east of the Jordan. These feel less like death and more like victory. And so again, it feels like the portion is filled with the paradox of life and death intermingled here. And so after kind of pondering this mixture of death and life for a bit, I listened to a teaching by Rabbi Trugman in which he brings forth the view of the rabbis on this portion who caught, and he says this. The Parsha begins with the law of the para aduma, right, the red heifer, of how to purify someone from the impurity of death. And this ritual contains a great paradox that those who are preparing the ingredients to purify others, they themselves become impure. And this is considered the paradox of the Torah, says Rabbi Trugman. And he goes on, there are many, many paradoxical things that happen in this Parsha. And this is what Rabbi Trugman says, it all has to do with what's called the mystery of life and death. So here's the bottom line. While this is certainly a season of death, these portions are saying that death is never only about death. You cannot separate the death from the new life. They come together. And this is the essence of everything in this portion. So listen now for this mixture of death and life as I quickly run through each topic again. This mixture of death and life. And so the death of the red heifer removes the impurity of death, restoring connection to God, which in restoring connection is life. Aaron passes away, but as he does so, he empowers his son to take his place. An entire generation passes away as another is being born in the 40 years in the wilderness. Moses loses the chance to enter the land, But in this portion, he actually does enter the land, not just to visit, but to conquer a king whose territory is within the boundaries of the promised land, the king of Arad. The serpent is death, but in looking to the one who is lifted up on the tree, the figure made by human hands to look like a serpent, there is a life from the dead. The princes of Israel stoop to the lowly work of digging a well 
humbling themselves, which is a kind of death in itself, in a way. And the whole nation is raised up to unified song. Balaam opens his mouth to curse, but instead what comes out is life, a multitude of poetic blessings. And so here's the main point today. And so let's get this into our heads. We have to remind ourselves of this over and over. We must experience what feels like loss before we can receive something new from the Lord. Before we can grow in him, we must be pruned by him. As we struggle in those low places where we know our lives have changed, where we know that God has taken away that place of comfort that we worked so hard to secure, we must also open our eyes to see the new life that he is bringing with the death, right? Being a believer is not the walk of comfort, right? We were constantly in this place of being moved to discomfort for the sake of new life. And so he will help us to see now the new life that is maybe not poking its way out yet, but it's forming there. And um, when a path comes to an end, when a dream leads to nothing but heartache, when a relationship breaks down, when a business goes belly up, trust that the miracle of God is at work, that the green shoot of life is already in the process of breaking through that black earth. Trust him. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Trust that he loves you and is giving you what is best for you. Open your eyes to see. Well, after this placing of the portions in the calendar, I want to move on to one of these progressions that sometimes are coming out in these portions and that I find truly fascinating. And so we can call this one the four battles of Parsha Hukat. Uh, What we're seeing in these important victories under Moses is the foundation and plan of all the victories to come under Joshua, right? So this is seed language I'm using here. Those triumphs to come will include victories in all areas of Israel's being, spirit, soul, and body, when they're under Joshua going into the land, victories in all those areas. Well, let me suggest that the victories over Arad and Sihon and Og are to be read as seeds that God gives Israel. In the final days of Moses' leadership, Israel will take these seeds of victory in battle and invest them, right? That's what you do with a seed. You invest it by putting it into the ground, and these seeds will bear the greater and more tangible fruit of the conquest of the land in, in all regions of the land and all regions of, of the being of Israel. That's, that's what this whole salvation story is about. And so let's briefly go through each of these victories. As I mentioned before, Arad is actually in the promised land. It's the only one of these in this portion that is in the promised land. We often don't think of this, but it becomes a part of the southern, Arad does become a part of southern Judah. It's conquered um, under Moses, but the people don't inhabit that territory at this time because it's devoted to destruction. So it will need to be conquered again under Joshua. And so the king of Arad is listed as one of those who is conquered under Joshua. Arad is 
kind of the seed of the seed, the very beginning of these victories, and the one that contains everything else. So, in um, first, Moses um, has to conquer a rod, and then Joshua has to conquer a rod, and in that, we see the efficacy of both, one, the Mosaic covenant, right? Moses conquers a rod. And then two, the new covenant that comes through Yeshua or Yahashua, um, Joshua, right? So conquer twice, the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. Well, a rod means to sequester or the idea of standing aloof by oneself. And it also is the word for wild donkey, which I believe they, they live a mostly solitary life, do wild donkeys, and so the two meanings are related. Sequester is really the idea of separation, which is death. And so victory over a rod is victory over death, right? That's all-encompassing um, seed of the seed is victory over death. It is the victory of the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. Well, Wild Donkey adds something further to this big picture. And um, it's a description, really, of the fallen flesh. The Rabash, as a commentator, he says that man is born a wild donkey. How do you like that? But in the end, says the Rabash, he will achieve the degree of man. And so what the Rabash means is that man is born mostly selfish, mostly thinking of himself and his own needs like an animal does. But in the end, he learns how to think of the needs of others. And this makes him uniquely human. And so in conquering a rod, we have both victory over death, which is a more spiritual victory, and victory over the flesh, which is a more physical victory. So once again, you see the whole picture is here in a rod. Again, it's another one of those details, this victory over a rod that can be easily overlooked. Nothing in Scripture should be easily overlooked. So moving on to Sihon and Og. Sihon means sweeping away. And Grant has taught us over the years that Sihon and his kingdom represent the human intellect, which is seated up here in the mind. We absolutely must overcome our need to understand everything before we will obey, right? There's an element of pride there that I have to understand it. God's ways are higher than our ways, and praise the Lord for that. Well, Og, on the other hand, as Grant has taught, means round. The name means round. And everything about him and his kingdom speak of the desire for physical comforts and pleasures, which are seated down here in the belly. Sihon up here, Og down here in the belly. So this too must be overcome this desire for physical comfort and pleasure if we are to have victory in the promised land. So we can say that under Joshua, the seed that is victory over Sihon unfolds as the southern campaign in the land. And we understand that to be the more spiritual, the higher portion of the land. And the victory over Og unfolds as the northern campaign, which is the more lush, the greener side of Israel, right? the spiritual side, the physical side, reflected in two battle campaigns in the land. But I've left one out. Scripture, over and over again, emphasize, it emphasizes these two, Sihon and Og. 
and they're mentioned many times in Scripture, but we always have a connector between these two, the middle ground between the neshama up here and the nefesh down here. And so between the two, as we've said before in a previous teaching, is the ruach, neshama, ruach, nefesh. And the ruach goes back and forth and is influenced by both the mind and the gut. And so we've connected the Ruach uh, to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and also to the emotions. So the emotions are seated in the heart. The emotions are seated in the heart, Ruach, and are affected by both the mind and the gut. So what do we find in the text here? Is there anything between Sihon and Og? Well, indeed, there is a third king mentioned here between the two, and his name is Yazer. Yazer means helper. And doesn't that sound like the ruach, the comforter, the tutor? Helper is also a good way to think of the emotions. Grant has many times told us that our emotions are there to help us process what we are experiencing, right? We, we have this, these emotions well up in us a little bit because we're digesting it up here, but also from here. And Um, they kind of help us to understand what's happening. And so we are not to be led by our emotions, Grant often says. On the other side, we are also not to act chiefly from our emotions. And so like Joseph, who saw his brother Benjamin and rushed out to weep, right? All these emotions, was welled up within him. He actually rushed away from his brother's to weep privately. And then the text says that he washes his face and he returns to his brothers and he says, serve the food. And so like that, we are to allow ourselves to experience the emotions because that helps us to process what's happening. But then we gain mastery of ourselves and only after, only after we are in control do we act. Action is down here. You know, the, the intellect and ruling ourselves is really up here. Um, we need to be ruled by this up here and not by this here. And then eventually we do, which is down lower. So the emotions help us to bridge what the mind perceives and what we end up doing. And so once again, the four victories of this portion are the seeds of a thorough victory in all parts of Israel's being, spirit, soul, and body in that order, as they're coming into the land of Canaan. And so as we read about these victories now, at this point in the year, we can be encouraged that God is busily laying the foundation for a greater victory to come in our lives as the year marches onward. Victory in all areas, you know, that's all, that foundation is being laid and we can be, we can look forward to all of that. And so there's so much more to say about these portions. But before we conclude with some thoughts about Yeshua, I want to turn to focus a bit on portion Balak. The bumblings of Balak and Balaam are meant to be a great encouragement to us. What I want us to see here in these few moments is that this whole story with Balaam is the Torah's version of a comedy scene. 
But as with everything else in the Torah, it's a comedy scene that speaks life to us in a profound way. So first of all, the story seems rather unnecessary. Israel doesn't even know that this spiritual attack is happening. While most of the action is taking place in the heights, Israel is oblivious down below, encamped on the plains of Moab. And it's not a short story either. The Torah devotes quite a bit of text to it, right? This whole portion of Balak. And so we need to ask what God intends to teach us through this portion. So why am I calling this a comedy scene? Well, God is toying with these enemies of Israel. He's playing with them like a cat with a mouse. It starts with Balaam asking God if he should go to help Balak. God clearly says no, but Balaam comes back a second time to say, are you sure, God? You know, there's a lot of money at stake for him, really. And so after giving Balaam the chance to do the right thing, right, the first time he asked and God gave him a clear answer, the second time God allows him to go, and it's because God has a little bit more in mind here. He will use Balaam as a symbol of what not to do for thousands of years, unfortunately for Balaam. Well, on the road, God decides to open the mouth of Balaam's donkey And the silliness of the situation begins, right? Balaam doesn't even blink an eye. He just talks back with his donkey. But what follows is a hilarious interaction between two very haughty men. Balak speaks of his great ability to honor Balaam, meaning that he can make him very rich. He's saying, don't you know how rich and powerful a man I am? And I can make you honored like me right? And he thinks he has the ability to raise men up like God does. And so for his part, Balaam fancies himself a poet, apparently. The text keeps saying how he takes up his discourse. It's like he moves to center stage and clears his throat, importantly, right? And graces everyone with his lofty words in which he keeps talking about himself in the third person, right? He starts one discourse or oracle by um, saying about himself, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. That's quite an introduction of himself there. (laughs) And much to everyone's amazement, he proceeds to bless Israel rather than curse them, right? What comes out of his mouth? And you just have to think the angels in heaven watching are are chuckling from up there. And so try to envision the fullness even more of the scene here. Here are these two, and with all the leaders of Moab, these vaunted men, trudging from one high place to another, sweating their way up these slippery mountains, you know, where the rocks are sliding on other rocks, lugging around stones to set up seven altars here and seven altars there, not an easy thing to do, and going through the exhausting work of offering seven bulls and seven rams each time, which is also expensive, then everyone just stands there like huffing and puffing and exhausted and waiting expectantly for the curses to come flying out of Balaam's mouth like venom, only to hear, 
How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. You know, wah, wah, right? <laughs> they're, they're just dumbfounded, I'm sure, and just hopeless there, right? So Tim Hegg points out that the fact that Israel can't see what is happening up there on those heights overlooking the camp, um, this, the, the fact that they can't see it indicates that we're seeing a, a picture here of an attack in the spiritual realm. And we know that our battle is chiefly a spiritual one. And clearly Balaam is a prophet who has an unusual connection to the spiritual realm. And what we need to see here and be encouraged by here is the fact that God protects Israel against this spiritual attack. They never even know what's going on. And in fact, what what Balak meant for evil, God turns into a blessing for blessings. And such words, Balaam ends up speaking out Israel's whole history from her separation to be a holy nation to her multiplication in number to her rising up like a lion to take the land to her settling down in the land and becoming fruitful there. And finally, to the coming of the Messiah, no less, and Israel's rulership over the nations. In fact, the Quixote Komish points out that what ends up coming out of Balaam's mouth is the most explicit reference in the five books of Torah to the Messiah. Here, Balaam refers to the Messiah as a star that comes out of Jacob and a scepter that rises out of Israel. Some of Balaam's words here come to be repeated for hundreds and thousands of years in the daily prayers. And his intentions were to harm Israel. You just have to shake your head at this and smile. This is God's humor, and it is life for Israel. So let's be encouraged from this story that God is actively protecting us from spiritual attack, and that he's even turning the attacks of our enemies into great blessings for us. Now, Balaam does end up giving advice to Balak that results in the deaths of many in Israel, and every death is tragic. But those deaths end up being the final purging of Israel before the new census is taken and they go into the land. With this incident of the, of the sin of Peor and the deaths of 24,000, the dying is done in, in the 40 years. Those who had succumbed to that final temptation and who tumbled into idolatry were surgically removed from the nation, and the nation was stronger for it, ready to go in now. Well, let's turn our attention now to Yeshua, and going deeper with seeing Yeshua in this discussion, I want to focus on seeing him in several of the most important narratives here. First, we have the red heifer. This hoke might be a conundrum to the rabbis, but to the believer, we see that everything about it speaks of the Messiah. Remember that the purpose of the red heifer is to cleanse from the impurity of death. It is through the Messiah's death that death is defeated. Like the red heifer, he, has, he is slain outside the camp, right outside the walls of Jerusalem. Killing him was the greatest sin and sin defiles. And so this is the answer to the riddle of the red heifer. Why it is that the priests who prepare the red heifer are rendered unclean. Their act of murder was a sin that defiles. But what they 
were used to prepare. What God used them for was to prepare the offering that is the remedy for death in the whole world. And so the connection um, we see between, uh, moving on now, the connection we see between Yeshua and the bronze snake are not hard to see either, really. Yeshua says in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Yeshua was made to resemble sin as he was lifted onto the cross. Like you could say he was made to resemble a serpent. He was made to resemble sin on the cross, but in him is life. And so there's a beautiful subtext here, actually, in the Hebrew word used for pole in this story, right? Put that serpent on a pole and lift it up. It's the word nace, which throughout the Tanakh is usually translated as banner or standard. The root of nace has the core idea of to gleam from a far away. Something that is lifted up as a banner, like in a battle, is meant to be visible from far away. Picture Yeshua's act like a nace on the battlefield, a banner that is lifted up in time. We are on that battlefield. We're on that same battlefield, um, but now at a greater distance in time from his gift to mankind, more than 2,000 years of distance. But as we battle in our time, we look back over our shoulders to that gleaming light of the crucifixion, and there it is. It's still standing there, that miracle, that salvation, proudly raised high. And those who lived before Yeshua, we live after, those who lived before Yeshua were on that same battlefield, the same one we are on, this life of human existence here, and they looked ahead of them. We look behind. They, look, they looked ahead of them to see the gleam of Yeshua on the cross. And in seeing it, all of us are healed. Well, lastly, let's say a few words about Phineas and Yeshua. We are looking in these stories right now as we think about Yeshua for how the one that, that dies is representing Yeshua. And so here we have two, two people who Phineas spears through. So we want to think about how these two represent Yeshua. Well, the Israelite man is named Zimri, and the Midianite woman is named Cosby. And so Zimri means my song, and Cosby means untrue or my lie. And so my song is Yeshua, right? The Israelite man. He is the song that God sings that brings creation into existence moment into uh, existence moment by moment. And taking a woman named untrue or my lie, we see that Yeshua, what Yeshua did on the cross there, he put on the clothing of the lie. And in that state, the two are pierced through. And so by putting to death the lie, life is established and the plague is ended. Again, it's ended. It's another just amazing picture of my song putting on my lie of Yeshua on the cross, putting on the sins of the world. 
and, and in that the plague uh, on the people is ended and life is established. It's just, it's just amazing. Well, that's plenty for us to ponder today. Thank you for listening. I will post a link to an outline of today's teaching below the video. May we be a people of vision to see with the eyes of faith how God brings death in order to bring new life, always. May God bless us to be a people who do not fear our enemies, but who fear only the one who holds all things in his hand. May he open our eyes to evermore see Yeshua in the word and in the world. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.